it was news last week, I don't know if you saw it, that just off the coast of Hawaii, two researchers were swimming with uh, great white sharks, and they believe swimming with what they believe is the largest great white shark on record. And they were swimming, you all. When I say that, you know, they weren't in a cage. Some of you nodding, you've seen this picture. You know, if you got a news feed or something, it probably popped up on it. There's a lady swimming. She's touching the side of this great white shark like it's a dolphin, you know, <coughs> going right beside her. You talk about things that we do stupid things we do that could kill us. I mean, this has got to be one of the highest fatality rates, you know, of, of things you can do while in Hawaii or in any body of water. Um, in 2008, uh, Valcav Smeal, he's a professor emeritus of um, University of Manitoba, he wrote a, a book for MIT Press in which he took things people do that can kill you, okay? So he, he took not swim with sharks, okay, or not jump out of airplanes. No, he said he was gonna take everyday things that we do and based on how often we do it or how often we're exposed to something every day, what's the likelihood of death with that? And uh, what he discovered is that we are all in way more danger than we thought. And it's not because we swim with great white sharks. It's because the number one thing, the riskiest thing you and I can do uh, that can kill us is spend time in the hospital. Now, some of you in healthcare probably knew that already. But just from a, you know, this is statistical, but from a statistical analysis, there is one death per 10,000 hours of exposure in a hospital. Now, think about it. It's not the appendicitis or the, you know, the, the whatever took you in there. That's not what kills you, is it? What kills you in the hospital? Yeah, the secondary disease that uh, you, get, you get while in there. And, and it just is like a conundrum. You stop and you go, wait, the place that I go to to save my life is the place that is most likely killing me. <laughs> and when we get to James, it's interesting in this passage that it's a similar conundrum. And we're gonna find that the very thing that many of us, if not most, think gives us life is the very thing that's killing us, that's robbing us of life. If you haven't turned there uh, after Sharon's reading, turn there now to James chapter one. We're in verses nine to 12 today. You know, we're studying through the book of James. We always wanna keep our particular text in its context, and so we're in the third message of this book, uh, verses nine through 12, keeping with the context, James begins with this thematic uh, overview in the first two verses where we understand the whole book is gonna be about the testing of faith. Okay, this is the whole book at some measures, the testing of faith and what that testing Produces. We noted there that these, these trials are multifaceted. I, I, I said they're multicolored. Eric, when he taught, it said here they're multi. You know, they're 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 different for individuals, and and God uses those to produce when we remain under them wholehearted life, wholeness, fullness of life. Last week, Rob picked up verses five through eight and. He noted that what you and I most need when under the trials of life, which we are always under, is not relief. The fact is we need wisdom. 
Remember Rob said, ask the giving God for wisdom to endure hupameno under that trial. And now in 9 through 12, uh, it, it feels like he's talking about this and then he just shoots off the road on a bypass to talk about poverty and wealth. But keep it in context. And you, what you'll see is, no, he's gonna talk about two trials that were faced, that, that, that his original audience faced, that you and I face today that we may often not think of at least one of them as a trial. And in verses one and two, it's, there's, a, there's a book in here I want you to see so that you see this, this is all the same topic. One and two, he talks about these trials producing wholehearted life, fullness, and there is no lack. In verse 12, our last verse, you'll see it's a soft book in in which he says, you know, those who persevere receive the crown of life. Wholehearted life, the crown of life. See, so here's the bookend on this particular section. I'm gonna talk about these verses in three parts and it comes right out of the text. We're gonna talk about poverty, prosperity, and promise. I'll give you three P words. Poverty, verse nine. Prosperity, verses 10 and 11. And then that last verse, that soft bookend would be um, promise. Let's start with, with poverty. We go a verse here at a time. Poverty, verse nine. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. David Nystrom has an excellent commentary on James. It's the NIV application commentary. He writes, quote, the ancient world knew almost nothing of what we would call the middle class. About 90% of the population of Rome lit, of the Roman Empire lived at or below what moderns would call the poverty level. Remember, Israel is under the thumb of Rome. 90% of the Roman empires uh, under the poverty level than those who are under the thumb of Israel most certainly are. And we know this, you all, that the early church, the majority of the early church was poor. Um, it's not to say that there weren't wealthy people in the church. There were because he's gonna talk about them. So when he says riches in a moment, please know the context tells us he's talking about material wealth. That's what he's talking about. And, and people in the church had it. And boy, he had some strong words for those of us in the church who are wealthy. Uh, he, you'll notice here, it says the, uh, the, the brother of humble circumstances. So this is a church member. Literally, the Greek is a member of the church. And I wanna say to those of you who are here who may not be a member at fellowship, or when it says member of church, it's not even speaking so much like a, a fellowship as it is, this is for people who have placed their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Believing what Jesus did, he did for me. That, that's who this is for. So if you haven't, then I want you to know you're off the hook, okay? And I'm glad you're here. I hope you hang out here and stay here, and I hope you do this. I hope you watch how people who say they are following Christ follow Christ. Because that's a, great, that's a great way to get to know Jesus himself. So this is for those who name. If you say you follow Christ, this is for us. He says it's a brother of humble circumstances. That means literally a brother of low uh, standard. Uh, they were viewed upon as lowly. Now, it's a sad state of affairs to say that religion at this time in Israel had succumbed to this view that 
God blesses the wealthy because of their righteousness and the poor are poor because of their unrighteousness. Think about the gospels and think about, think about some of the wealthiest prominent Jewish people in the gospels. Who are they? Who would be some? The Pharisees. How about that? The religious leaders were some of the wealthiest people in the Jewish community. And religion had come to the point where the religious leaders would look at you and go, well, yes, I'm wealthy because I'm righteous. And you're poor because you're not. I mean, this is kind of how it's viewed. So this is the lowly position that those without means would, would take and be viewed upon in society. Now, his there's going to be a juxtaposition here when we get to the next verse where it's the lowly of little means is highly exalted. Then it's going to flip and it's going to say the wealthy, the world thinks highly of them. Oh, but you need to see yourself as lowly. So this is where this is going to flip flop. But the, the lowly of little means exalt or boast or you know publicly boast, quite frankly, is the word here. Glory is boast in your high position. Well, what is that high position? Well, in, if this is the world's view and this is heaven's view, the world's view is you're lowly, boast in your high position in your heavenly standing. Well, what does that mean? Well, boast in your high position in that you have, you've placed faith in Christ, you're born again. And Paul will later write that those who know Christ have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That those who are in Christ Jesus are co-heirs of all that is Jesus's. Y'all, that's for all of us who know Christ, boast and exalt in that. This is this lasts forever. This is eternal. So the lowly, you see, will boast in their high position. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. I think this is a good interpretation of what we're talking about here. What does it mean that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? The poor in spirit would be those who, who recognize that, who recognize a poverty of self in this sense. They own their, their bankruptcy in terms of self-sufficiency. I, I can't of myself do anything, gain anything on God. Does that make sense? So I'm bankrupt in terms of my self-sufficiency and I declare, I declare my total dependence. I have nothing which to grab onto other than God. So blessed are they who know that place in that position. Now, I want to make a, a brief aside on this um, because it is talking about financial wealth and means, material possessions. It's true that for everyone who names the name of Christ, you all, God says, you know, rejoice in all that you have in Christ, all that you are in Christ and will never be taken away from you in Christ. And yet, let's recognize that in this church and in our church, there are people who have financial needs, who have material needs today in this room. And I just wanna say this. So, so how does the church deal with that? It's not like, you know, I know you need money for rent this month, but boy, exalt that you're a Christian. You know, we don't do that. What does the church do? Well, the early church, remember in the book of Acts, what they did? Y'all, they sold their things and they brought it and gave it to the apostles and said, use this to help others. Now, I mean this when I say it. They sold their things. They sold their home. Somebody owned a piece of land. They just sold it. 
you and I could do that today and you bring it to the church and say, distribute this to people who have need. Now, what we know is throughout the book of Acts, that wasn't repeated, nor was it prescribed. But what we see when the other apostles write the epistles to the burgeoning early church is, the exhortation was, those in the church, as best you can, take care of those in the church. Care for each other. Such that if you're in here today and you have a need, a material need, I want you to, there's a little nuance here. It's not that you would come to me and, and ask, you know, is there a benevolence fund? Or go to Eric and say, is there a benevolence fund? I want you to know there is a benevolence fund and you can do that. But the normal functioning of the church would be this, that the church and individual members were so connected to other individual members in smaller groups that they could go to that group and say, you guys know me, you've been walking with us for years, uh, we just ran into this and I made a mistake on this and I need help. And the smaller group would meet the need of the individuals. Does that make sense? I'm not making this up like this is small group strategy. This is what the early church did. And so the question for us is always, are you in a group such that you can make your needs known when that time comes, Lisa and I have been in a fellowship group, but the latest one we've been in about four or five years. And I mean this when I say it, I really could go to that group and whether it was my mistake and I did something or life happened and I need, Lisa and I need some help on something, I could, go, I could go to that group and just say, this is, we need this much money or need this, this to get us through till next month. And that, that group would help me. And I'd feel, I could do that with that group. Now, what keeps us from doing that though? It's just gonna be pride for me and for you. It's just gonna be, no, nah, I don't want people. And I can't tell you how many of you I talk to who run up against that. And I don't say that to shame you, but to say that pride is so strong in us, we won't let those needs be known. But I'll tell you this, that's how the church is to function. And that's why we, as we drew our napkin discipleship strategy, discipleship plan, right? We said, look, at fellowship, this is, what, this is the way it goes. You come to church regularly and you get in a group. That's just baseline. Does that make sense? Because you gotta be in that group setting where those needs can be met. Now, I had this in my message before I came today and found out I need to remind you that there's a group meeting tonight. So if you're not in a group, there is a group meeting from 4 to 5.30. I mean that. And I told him, I said, that's great. It's in my message. I'll say it. But I mean it, and we mean it when we say, uh, if you're not in a, in a group, then, then you're outside, the, at least for fellowship, our discipleship plan, our discipleship strategy, how you grow and mature in the faith. I hope you take advantage of that. From poverty to prosperity, look at verses 10 and 11. He's gonna switch it. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. We get a little bit confused, at least I did when I went, when you read it and you go, you know, the, 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 the man of low esteem exalt in your high position and then it goes, the, the, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Literally, it's this. The, the man of low esteem, you have a high position. Glory in it, boast in it. The man in the world's eyes who has high esteem, you have a low position. Glory in it. 
Don't get hung up on that word humiliation per se. It's the same root word as the word above, which speaks of a high position. So it's a high position and a low position. How does, a, how does the wealthy exalt in their low position? The New Living Translation, a very helpful uh, look at this. It reads, those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. That's what it says. You go, well, I don't like to be humbled. Me neither. <laughs> but we have to understand to be humbled biblically is a gift. See, to be humble is not to, to be uh, you know, squashed or demeaned or shamed. To be humble is to see yourself as God sees you. It's a biblical understanding of your value and worth. That's a gift. See, what he's trying to say, and he's saying to those who have means, he's trying to help them understand, it's a gift. You should exult in the gift that God has opened your eyes to show you that all your stuff is unconnected to your value and worth. See, if you don't see that, you're in trouble and so you exalt that you can see God has humbled me and in that way, what a gift that God has humbled me to see that my stuff won't last. Why do you think James gives so much ink to the rich? Think about this. You notice that? Look, if you don't have much, you exalt in your high position. If you have a lot, you need to exalt in your low position. And by the way, I want you to understand, you understand you're like grass, you're like your yard. It's July. Stops raining. Don't water it. It's brown. Do you understand that your wealth is like that? It's, it's like a wind. This, this scorching wind blows. And it's like a flower. And, and, the, and it falls off. And it's destroyed. And it fades. <laughs> it's like the lowly. Yeah. Let me talk to the wealthy. Why does he spend so much time talking to the wealthy? Why do you think? Why do you think? Just logically. Because, because they need it. Because why? What do we do with our, what do we do with our possessions of wealth? We put our trust in them. We worship them in a sense. We, we, we put our confidence in what I've got, what I've saved, what I'm asking. See what I'm saying? And he knows that. The Bible's so practical. And he wants the wealthy to understand Everything you have, do you understand? It's not gonna last. It's just gonna be gone. Perhaps he had Proverbs 23 in mind where it says, do not wear yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself like wings, like an eagle that flies towards heaven. I've got so much stuff. It's gone. I want you to think for a moment about the glory of the poor. The glory of the poor is that which they have in Christ, that which is eternal and lasts forever. I want you to think about the exaltation of the, of the rich. Their exaltation is to say, look, everything I have doesn't last forever. Last forever doesn't last forever. You see this? And in this way, I think we, I, I wanna infer, if I may, to say that whatever your station in life, whether in poverty or having less or in wealth and having more, the means by which we persevere under 
little or persevere under much is to live from and to live for that which lasts forever. It's what we would, we would call an eternal perspective that we live over here in time, on a continuum of time, but we know we have this time, but then there is a forever, okay? There is a forever by which we measure and shape our time-bound life. It's uh, what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4. Do you remember this? For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all, comprehend, beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I'm telling you, the stuff we have is what we see. It's temporary. That which we can't see by the way, in the Bible, it's very clear. The souls of men is forever, forever. We, we talk about eternity a, a good bit, you know, around church. And I know we, we, we believe it. I do. But, man, isn't it something hard to get your head around? Eternity, you know. And if you're at a funeral, you speak of someone who's passed away. And if they know Christ, we know that they're going to spend eternity with God. Whether they live 50 years, 5 years, 5 weeks, or... A hundred years, we, we kind of look at it and go, but now they're in forever, forever. You know, it's a long time, hard to get our head around. And uh, I, I have an illustration. You've probably seen something like this many, many times. That, but I want you just to, to, to get, get this picture in your mind's eye. Luke, I need your help to come up here and grab this side of this thing. And uh, I just want you to walk to the very end of the stage. Lauren, I'm sorry to bother you, but would you jump up here with me? Jump on up here. And I'll let you take this in. And I want you to take that to that end of the stage. Keep going all the way back. Right there's good. And then Lauren, grab this part so you can hold it tighter. There you go. So you guys are holding that. Um, and so I've got a tape measure up here. This is one of those 100, 100, um, 100 feet tape measures. I've only got, I've got less than 30 feet up here. And it's one of those that measures, you know, obviously long lengths. And so it's not broken down, by the way, into sixteenths like a regular ruler is. It's broken down into tenths. So between every inch, there are marks that mark out every tenth, okay? If, if this was a line representing eternity, of course, you know, that end would go through the wall and would never end. The end Lauren's on would go through that wall and it would go and it would never end. You get it? So it's just a picture of eternity. You know, this is a, you know, if we looked at this tape up here, I just want you to know if it's, say it's, it's about 28 feet long, so if... If I put a, a value of each tenth of 100 years, okay, then you're looking at 280,000 years of, of, of time up here. But what's 280,000 years in the context of eternity? How big is it? I don't know, man. I mean, you have to have a microscope. I mean, you couldn't even get that small if you were trying to look at eternity. But look it up here. Just, let's just take 280,000 years and let's just say somewhere along this timeline is your life. So your life is on here, and, and so what would your life look like if you put yourself on the timeline? 
I mean, if you're halfway back in the room, I don't know that you could see it if I drew it, if I drew your life on here. Does that just make sense? It's just to remind us that our lives are just in the span of eternity. In fact, I did, right at 21 feet, I drew a picture of your life. Let me find it here. Uh, there. I've got it up on the screen because you can't see it. So this is your life. <laughs> right there, man. I actually made your head 100 years wide. So think about that. That's 100 years. So really, it's not, you don't live that long, right? Most, many of us aren't going to get the 100. But how small is that? Every inch is 1,000 years. So there's 1,000 years around you on between, nine and ten, between that 9 and 10. What are you living for, See? This is the thought that he's, he's going after here. Thanks, Lord. I'll roll that up. Luke, hang on to your end while I roll this. Um, we, we talk about eternity, but sometimes do we really go, you know, how's, how is eternity shaping my time? That's the point. If eternity is not shaping our time, then we don't truly understand eternity. Because if, we, if, if we, we say we believe in eternity, but we're not living for it or from it, then all you have is time. And I'm telling you, most people live this way. It makes sense. Get your bucket list. Get, you know, make the most that you can. Isn't that, isn't that true? That's what you would do. But we as Christians, this is for people who say, I'm following Jesus We'll choose to make choices in time that reflect our view of eternity, which is what Jesus did. The God-man chose death at 33 because he was living for eternity, not for those 33 years. What does that mean? What does that look like for you and for me? Really? One of the questions I had out of this text, I'm going to ask you to answer it. Do you think James would consider Lloyd rich in this text? I'm being serious. Do you think he would? Okay, if he's considering me rich, what do you think he's considering you? I, th I think rich. Wealth's really difficult to categorize. I'm not going to call you wealthy, and, and you know I'm not aware because you know seventy thousand dollars in Clarksville, Tennessee, and seventy thousand dollars in San Jose, California. That's two really different things. There are people in this room who have a million dollars in liquid assets. There are people in this room who have a million dollars in liquid assets, and I would look at you and go, "You are wealthy," but you would look at it and go, "I know people who have twenty million, forty million. You would you go? I'm not wealthy. I mean, I'm just just baseline retired. You know, see what I'm saying? So we could go all around on that. Let's just put that aside. That can be a marker of wealth, but let's take another marker of wealth. And I think it's an appropriate and objective marker. Peter Drucker, he was writing in the Harvard Business Review just not that long ago, really. He's passed away since, but he wrote this. He's the father of American management, if those of you who don't know Peter Drucker. He says, throughout history, practically nobody had any choice about where they lived or the quality of life they lived. In a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, I think it's very probable that the most important event these historians will see is not technology, not the internet, and not e-commerce. 
It's an unprecedented change in human history. For the first time, and I mean that literally, for the first time, substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. And let me say, we are totally unprepared for it. So let's take your net financial value off the table and let's just put in front of us what's true in the history of mankind that has never been true before, that more people and more and more and more have choices. So we look at our life and I'll stand back and I'm not stepping on anyone's toes, no pun intended on this, but did you have more than one pair of shoes to choose from today? I'm talking to the guys, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Yes, I did. Do you have more than one outfit you could wear? Yes, you know, you know we know this. Do you think about think about how we live? Do you have a choice in insurance carriers to insure your stuff that nothing will go bad with it? And think about insurance itself. Is that a wealth concept or a poverty concept? You know, that's just a wealth concept in a way. You know, we, 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 if you don't have anything, you don't insure it, but we insure our stuff just so that we can get our money back if something happens to our stuff. We could go on and on, and it's just, let's agree that we are a people of choice, and in that, we are a people of wealth. We're not often asked, you know, by financial planners, and this is so good, um, you might not get much work if you're a financial planner and you ask it this way, but, you know, our financial planner is certainly going to help, help us, right, make sure all of our assets are at work for Who? Okay, how many of us, how many of us, forget the financial planner, would take our assets and go, how, how many of our assets are at work for the kingdom? I'm not saying you can't retire. Don't, you've got to plan retirement. And you, that's, that's why stewardship, you all. You know I'm not throwing that out. But I'm saying how many of us would say, how, I am building net worth and, and it's at work for the kingdom. This is what he's getting at. I wanna be so clear on this so you guys don't walk out of here confused and I was sitting here, have I said this or not? And sometimes I forget. You notice he doesn't say wealth is wrong. He doesn't say wealth is wrong. He doesn't tell the poor, pursue wealth. But he doesn't say to the wealthy, you need to give it away and be poor. No, whatever station you're at in life, are you living in light of and for that which lasts forever. The Bible never condemns you know, wealth or means. And what a gift of those who have choices and means that we have the opportunity to put those things to work for the kingdom. Finally, promise. Poverty, prosperity to promise. Look at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I'm telling you, I, I see that book into verses one, two, and three, that when endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. See the book in? Complete, lacking in nothing after persevering, and you use the crown of life after persevering. Here's the, here's the book end on this section. What does it mean, this crown? Is it a literal crown? I don't know. There are other crowns the Bible speaks of. I personally don't think they're literal crowns. I think, really, let's just take this one. It's, it's a very, it becomes clear when we put the grammar in place and you, know, you go, here's what the Greek idea and the Greek sentence structure says. Here it is. He will receive the crown, which is life. <laughs> 
That's what he's saying. He'll receive the crown, which is life. What do you mean I receive the crown, which is life? What do you mean life? I mean the life, the life of verses two, three, and four, the wholehearted life, the full life, the life in which nothing's lacking. You're full and complete in Christ, that life. Well, do I get it when I get to heaven? Uh, in its fullness, but this is in time, that in time as you and I endure under trial, we receive and experience the fullness of life. Right now we experience the fullness of life. As we know, as we remain under these trials and the spirit shapes Christ in us through them. He says that it's for those who persevere. And then he says, and it's for those who love me. And so I must ask you, which is it? Is it for those who persevere or is it for those who love Jesus? Which, who gets the crown, which is life? I've got a coin in my pocket that can help us because we're all hanging on to these coins throughout our city of James to remind us that faith is belief and behavior that to say you believe something is to do something. So when Jesus says, for those who persevere and to those who love me, what's he saying? To persevere is to love. You say you love Jesus, that's, that's the same as saying you will persevere. Even as John writes in his gospel account, John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandment. So, so wait, do I, love, is, do I love Jesus? Well, yes. And that love is expressed by keeping his commands. And you cannot separate the two. Lest you and I ever come to a place, by the way, where in our minds we think, I loved you, Jesus, so give me what's mine. John will write in 1 John 1, 9, we love because he, what? First loved us. Please know our love for, it is always, always, always about God, not us. He loved us first while we were yet sinners. Christ loved us and therefore all of our obedience all of our perseverance, all of our I love yous are a response because his love came to us first and opened our eyes to just how much he loved us. I've got two statements I'm gonna read to you. Don't try and write these down. Uh, they'll be on the website. I'll get them up there this week. I think summarizes in part the message. They're a little wordy. That's why I don't want you to try and write this down. Just listen. When the life to come matters more to you than the life you have now, all you have now is put to work for the life to come. Here's my time in life. When the life forever matters more to me, and it doesn't diminish life now, matters more to me than life now, than all that I have right now, I'm gonna put it to work for the life to come.
I'll say it a second way. When the life to come matters more to you than the life you have now, the life you have now will become more than you ever imagined. See, so now we're not diminishing life now. No, life now matters. What a gift. But I'm gonna tell you something. It will become more than you ever imagined in time when the life to come matters more to you than even the life now. Several years ago, fold your books up. I've got one last thing we'll do. I heard a song by uh, one of my uh, favorite artists then and even now, a guy named Ben Rector. Some of you know Ben. Um, but he, this is, I think, his second, Grant was telling me it was his second album, so this is 10 years ago, but there was a song that played, and I remember just playing this song over and over because when I heard this song, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, that is so, that's so us as a church, that's, that's, that's where we live, this, this world that we're living in, our cultural world right now, it's, it's killing us, so much of all the, the good life, you know, that kind of, that phrase, living the good life, the good life's killing us, you know, and I always think that of that song. And as I was studying James for this passage, I, I, that song came back to me. And I thought, that's, that's a Ben Rector song. I think, if, I think if we took these passages and it was put to song, I think, uh, I think this Ben Rector song, it's called Song for the Suburbs. Uh, I think he's saying what? I think he's saying what James is saying. And you're gonna hear these words. This American dream is not what it seems. Maybe we're still breathing, but we're all asleep. Because I want to live until I die. Don't let the devil bury me alive. When my heart stops, let me go home. Don't let the suburbs kill my heart and soul. He says, pretty cars and pretty houses, pretty people on parade. If this dream is what you're after, then dreaming's where you'll stay. Because I want to live until I die. Don't let the devil bury me alive. When my heart stops, let me go home. This isn't home. And then that line, don't let the suburbs kill my heart and soul. Let's listen to this. There's no video to it. It's just the words, and I want you to hear them. This American dream is
I don't let the devil bury me alive. When my heart stops, let me go home. Don't let the shepherd. Stand together, and as you stand, I want you to reach in your pocket, if you have it, and grab your coin. We've invited you to grab one of these coins. You know they're dollars, and uh, if you don't have one, they're in the back still. It's probably the last week we have them back here, but grab one, and because and, we're going to kind of just let this remind us. Remember, if we believe something, we do it. Uh, faith without works is dead. And so this week, I'm just going to encourage you that you'd keep this coin around, you'd grab it, and holding both sides, you might ask the Lord, in light of this truth from James, God, what's a step of faith you're inviting me to take with my wealth? What's a step of faith? I don't know, but the Spirit knows, you know, what, how he might invite you to choose a decision that might be there. So again, grab one as you, as you leave if you don't have one. Don't grab an eight because you want to have one around when you lose one. Just kidding. And by the way, whoever bought a hot chocolate with one last service, I want to talk to you afterwards because they got one back there. Somebody bought a hot chocolate, you know? Um, this is for you to hang on to um, and remind us of faith and works. James probably may have had Jeremiah in mind when he spoke of this and, and inspired God read this message. I think it's a wonderful benediction for us as we leave. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast in his might and let not the rich man boast in his riches but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, says the Lord. This is our God. May this be our heart of boast.